This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. This is MBSW starring Greg Wyshynski of ESPN. Hello, Greg. How are you? Hello. I'm good, I suppose. You know, got to see a little double hockey last night. Dougie Hamilton continuing his hobby of mm-hmm. scoring game timing and game-winning goals late in games. So, I was talking about that off the top of the show today. So, a couple of things. I, I think maybe you and I have talked about this before. There's a couple of things that I really love about Dougie Hamilton. One, okay. I don't know if there's anyone in the NHL that one times the puck better than him. And there are a lot of people that one time the puck really well. I don't think anyone does it better than Dougie Hamilton. And two, I like the fact that his parents called him Dougie. They didn't call him Doug. <laughs> they named him Dougie. Just like his brother, they didn't name him Fred. He was named Freddy. This is the first clue that you come from a sports family. The kids aren't Doug and Fred. They're Dougie and Freddy. That's what I love about Dougie Hamilton. Your thoughts on this? I'll give you the Dougie Hamilton story from last night. So uh, we go into the Devils locker room post-game. He's the only one sitting there. And... uh, and, you know, the Devils in the first period played their quintessential Devils hockey. Like, they were fast. They controlled play. They were stealing pucks. The, the Golden Knights had no response to what the Devils were doing. And then in the second and third periods, they kind of lost the thread a little bit. And, you know, it wasn't like they were, you know, losing the game, but they were playing even. And, and that was a huge change from the domination in the first period. So we asked Dougie Hamilton. So, like, what happened? What changed in the second and third after the first period went as well as it did against Vegas? Now, keep in mind, this guy is still on the euphoric high of of just rifling an <laughs> overtime game winner home Great on the shot. power play. And and yeah. <laughs> Hamilton goes, he goes, I don't remember a thing from the second and third periods. And he goes, mm-hmm. I could make something up for you. <laughs> but I honestly don't remember anything that happened in the second and third periods. And one, it's a very Dougie Hamilton answer. And two, it's it's also clearly like that NHL player mindset of, hey, you know what? It all worked out. And maybe at some point we can break down tape and what have you. But now, 15 minutes after this, baby, I'm flying. We ain't talking about the second and third. <laughs> okay. So this goes back to, like, first of all, I think he's being honest. Yeah, okay? yeah. I really do. And here's why. So I did rinkside for a number of years at Hockey Night. So I was responsible for, you know, the intermission interviews, the walk-offs, right? And so many times, like, when you ask a player, like, what happened out there on that goal, you know, what led up to that fight or what happened on that one big play, and they'll try to cobble together an answer because they're on, you know, uh, they're on television and they don't want to sound dumb. But the real answer generally, and if you try to get players to sort of, you know, walk through their highlight after it happened, it almost sounds as if like, you know, they're a foreigner, you know, trying to do play by play of a sport that they've never seen. Because I really believe that this is going to sound real flaky, but here I go. When you've played hockey for as long as these guys have, Sometimes you go on autopilot. Maybe you have to because you know how to play and you know the sequences and you know what's going on. It almost becomes like the game plays you. You know in certain 
spots and certain times, this is what I'm going to do. And your body is programmed just to do that. It's almost as if the game is carrying you through the game. And then to pause and have someone like you or me stick a microphone in their face and say, now describe what just happened. I really think it's an honest answer if it's, I don't know what happened out there. I really think right. that's an honest answer in these situations. Right, and that's why oftentimes you're you're going to the coaches and what have you after the game to really kind of get a breakdown yeah. of, of how things went because, you know, not only do they have the vantage point, uh, but they also have the benefit of hindsight and having been able to watch a replay after the game is done. Because, I mean, the, the, the sequence of events, for those who don't know, is that you go into the locker room, you talk to the players, and then typically you talk to the coach afterwards. So by that time, the coaches had a good 25 minutes after the little final buzzer to, to reassess things. One of the mm -hmm. things uh, that I found really funny last night to that end, uh, somebody asked um, Lindy Ruff about the Jack Hughes pass that set up the Dougie Hamilton goal, which, by the way, was incredible. Like, if you haven't seen it, Hughes was pinned against the boards, being grounded to dust by two Vegas players. And, and, and remember, like, you know, one of the knocks on Hughes, the, one of the few knocks on him is that in some cases he's like built like Timothy Chalamet. But he, he survived the hit <laughs> and then made an incredible pass to Hamilton for the one-timer. So somebody asked Lindy Ruff after yep. the game, they're like, what'd you see on the pass, <laughs> right? And and the, the play happened on the far boards from where the media is sitting. So it's happening on the, the benches side of the ice. <clears throat> and Lindy said, absolutely nothing. Like, I literally couldn't see anything from where I was couldn't standing. See. He's like, I know all you guys think that I can see everything when I'm on this bench. That play happened. I couldn't even see the guy. All of a sudden, I see the puck come out. I'm like, I don't know how that happened. And then later on, he, he looks at the replay and, and sees that it was a, a great pass from, from Jack Hughes to set up the game winner. So, so it's, it's again, like if you want to know what happened, talk to the coach, but only after he's gotten a chance to see actually what did happen. It's a 6-4 uh, play by a 5-11 guy. Yeah, like I looked at that play and thought, like, there's no way that Jack Hughes makes that play in his first year. Like, I remember when Hughes no. again like, just bounced around, and we're like, oof, what, what's what's going on? Like, they took this guy first overall. Like, I think they're they're rushing him into the NHL here. That's just a flat. Like, there's there's two great plays there. One, again, I go back to the Dougie Hamilton one timers. Find me another who can do that. And and, and by the way, he's not Dougie Hamilton isn't coasting into that one timer. Like no. Dougie Hamilton's like at pretty much a dead stop. Like he's at a yeah. dead stop and fires it again. Enough about Dougie Hamilton, but that play by Jack Hughes, like that is a really high level. Like that's one of those plays that NHLers look at and go, "Ooh!" Like you know, the NHL guys would like look at like subtle things that like I don't know Marion Hosa would do, and they go, "Oh mm -hmm. man, that's incredible!" And yeah. we look at it like, oh, "What are they seeing?" It'd be nice to see have an NHLer's eyes. Like an NHL player will look at that play along the boards. By Hughes. Now the cynical NHL player will say, "Like, nice defense, way to defend there." But like, oh, yeah. a lot of other players will look at that and go, "Like, man, that's just a great play by Jack Hughes." And we're seeing more and more of this, like Jack Hughes continuing to distinguish himself, take the next step, all of it. You know, is he going to become, you know, the first hundred-point man in New Jersey Devils history, trending that direction, etc.? I just think it's a great play by Jack Hughes. Like, I just think that's a real high-level. Hockey person's hockey play. How does that sound? Yeah, I agree. And and uh, you know, I'm in I'm in the press box watching that game last night, and I'm reminded of something that you and I have talked about a lot, which is that you you got to go to the games, right? Like 
I know it costs a lot of money. Got to go to the costs games. A lot of money to go to an NHL game. Let that be said, uh, it is insane how much a night at the rink costs for a family of four these days. That being said, like if you can afford mm-hmm. it, the opportunity to not only experience all the things you love about hockey in person and the things that sadly never have been able to translate to television. Um, those, that's one reason to go. But the other reason to go is just to get a chance to see what happens when the cameras aren't on these guys. And, you know, if you go to a Devils game and you get a chance to see what Jack Hughes does when he's not on the puck and how desperately he's trying to get the puck <laughs> to have the puck again, the little things that he sure does, the little things that Brat does to set up goals, to set up chances, and to, and to do the things the Devils do really, really well this season, which is to everybody join the rush, but then everybody get back. And they do it better than anybody, I think, in this league. Um, like, all of that is just beautiful to watch if you're a hockey fan. And it's, you know, even with the benefit of HD technology, you still don't get it on a broadcast to really get a sense of what these guys do ship to ship. And it's just, it, they're, they're a really fun team to watch from a, a hockey nerd standpoint and from a kinetic offensive standpoint, too. There, there, there's nothing like it. And I always say to everyone, like, you, you got to get down there and get uh, at least for a little bit, get as close to the glass as you can just to see mm. how fast things happen no, and how I, quickly you got to process it out there. Yeah, no, sit, I, I agree. Like, I, I was just talking to somebody about this the other night. Like, my, my family, my mom worked for an accountant in New Jersey who had his mm-hmm. company had season tickets, as a company does, in order to entice clients, yada, yada, yada. But when the tickets weren't being used, say, when, like, you know, the Whalers were in town or whatever, like a team that people weren't really desirous hey. to watch. Uh, I'm not, I know I'm not throwing shade. They just, you know, sucked when I was a kid. So like um, <laughs> we would sit fourth row from the glass. That's where the seats were at the Meadowlands. And, and I agree with you, like you, you should try to sit as close as you can. If you have the opportunity to get a sense of the speed of it all and the velocity of it all. But those those seats stink. Like it, you sit, sit. No, 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 you can't. No, 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 no. Sit, sit center ice. What, 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 what 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 I'm saying is you need to just have that experience, get as close as you can, but the best seats are like 20 rows back. Like you you need to be able to, to take everything like 20 rows back yeah. center ice. That's yeah. where that's where that's where you, you want to be. Hundred percent. I so sit upstairs. I'm like I, I'm, a, and, I'm a sit upstairs guy. Like when I take my kid to the game, I sit upstairs. When I have a chance to go with friends, I sit upstairs. Like I just I just really enjoy being able to see everything. You know the the symphony that yeah. is uh, a five man unit. Um, working together, just it's just great to watch. It's to take it all in and, and get a view of the ice, and, um, and and maybe you don't get the same kinetic thrill of the speed, and, and maybe you don't get immersed in it. Like if you sit, like you said, if you sit lower bowl, like twenty rows back, it's like being in an Avatar movie. Like you're immersed in the environment. Like you look up and there's fans above mm. you. Look at the ice. The players are there. Like everything seems so big, and you seem like you're in the middle of it all. If you sit like twenty rows back, lower bowl, but. I don't know. I'm an upstairs guy. Maybe, maybe, maybe the press box has poisoned my brain to be able to have that be the vantage point. But I just like sitting upstairs and seeing everything develop. And on the other side of the benches too, not behind the benches. I want oh, to be no, on the other no, side you of gotta, the benches. You gotta sit to watch you the, look bench. at the benches. Yeah, without question. Yeah, unless unless you're somebody who really um, gets off on seeing the interaction of players as they enter the penalty box. And 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 the sweet nothing <laughs> to get whispered between players as they're as they're marched to the sin bin because you do lose that if you're sitting across from the benches. Yes, um, but yeah, and have always you, they're 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 they're, sat... they're. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
No, no, I was gonna say, and and to hear the final salvo uh, before they get into the get into the penalty box, like their their final shot at the officials. Right. Anyway, what are you saying about the penalty box? Have you ever sat behind the penalty box, by the way? Have you ever sat behind the penalty box? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Plenty of times. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever had the pleasure. No, of, I've never of that vantage point. I. I was at a. I think it was a Leafs Devils game. Now that I think about it, where there was God, how I think I was like twelve or thirteen, and there was a penalty box fight. I think it was Jim Corn. Trying to remember who was fighting. It was Jim Corn. Oh no, it wasn't Devils. Maybe it was Hartford Whalers. Was it like Corn and Brubaker? Maybe I can't. I can't. Uh, Troy Robertson. Maybe. Mm. Uh, I have to go to the uh, the old YouTube machine for that. But those. Those are rare and those are gone, but those used to be sort of semi-regular occurrences. The mm-hmm. penalty box fight, the one that goes a little bit further than just jawing at each other from uh, from one right. penalty box to the other. Okay, one thing I want to get into with you here. Um, yesterday, and I talked about this off the top of the show, played the audio from Gary Bettman. It is, and I don't, like I understand why he's saying it, and parts of it are really true. But I know fans had a hard time with it and are calling BS on it. And like, okay, here come the here come the bullhorns uh, on on Gary's comments. But the idea that teams don't tank and that there's no tanking. But I always throw in the caveat here because there is always that there's always that lawyer moment for Gary Bettman, and this is part of what makes him. You know, when whatever room he's in, it's always been said, whatever room he's in, he's the smartest guy in that room. The <laughs> lawyer moment in his comment is when he referred to players and coaches. Correct. You know, leaving aside the general managers, the team presidents, in a lot of situations, ownership as well, who need buy-in on things like rebuilds and tanking for draft picks, choosing only to focus on the players and the coaches. And I agree with them. They don't tank. Players don't. Coaches don't. The job's on the line here. But there are teams that are constructed, and there are plenty of them right now in the NHL, and you'll see what happens at trade deadline as everyone tries to improve their Connor Bedard stock. There are teams that are built to lose. How did you react to Bettman's comments yesterday about, no tanking here, move along? Exactly as you did. Nothing he said was untrue. With one caveat, which we'll get to in a second. But, like, the players don't tank. I still remember um, doing a preseason story on the Buffalo Sabres, uh, the year that they were going hard for either McDavid or Eichel, I talking to mm-hmm. uh, Drew Stafford about the idea of the of the Sabres tanking, and seeing the absolute fire in his eyes <laughs> when I when I indicated that <laughs> the 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 you know veteran players on the Sabres would in any way try not to win this season for the betterment of of future seasons. And once you see that from a guy, you know inherently in their DNA that players don't tank. Um, Also, they don't tank because a lot of them aren't going to be there to um, experience the spoils of of draft victory. Like that's, you know, you and I had to have debated for years the gold plan for the draft and, you know, give it to the team that wins the most after elimination. And my counter argument, one of many, has always been, well, you know, you're talking about a number of guys who are playing not to get hurt because they're not going to be there next year. Why would they possibly care about what happens to the yeah. team's draft future for the next, you know, two months of the season? But that's neither here nor there. Batman's Batman's right about the players. You and I are right about ownership and management. These teams that suck this year, they're they're set up to be terrible. Um, and and in many cases, it's yeah. it's, it's it's coming to fruition. 
The coaching thing is a little bit trickier for me. I don't think coaches do anything but, like you said, try to keep their jobs. And normally keeping your job means winning. Sometimes keeping your job mm -hmm. is, is not about winning because you're on a multi-year contract and the team knows the reality of its surroundings. And, and you're part of a larger picture, a picture that may include either Connor Bedard or Adam Fantilli after the season. So sometimes, you know, when the season gets a little bit long, some guys maybe are, aren't in the lineup as much as they uh, they typically are. Sometimes we want to get a good look at the kids, Merrick. You know, it's come part this part of the season where we know we're not going to be in the playoffs. We're going to get a real good look at this knucklehead from the AHL who is does not play NHL-level defense. We're going to see what we have here with this guy. And some of that is the general manager, but some of that is also the guy setting the lineup. And, and so the only caveat that I give to the coaching part of this is that sometimes you get guys that aren't afraid that they're going to be fired who maybe towards the end of the season are trying to give a look to quote unquote the younger players and that can lead to improving one's draft position that okay that's an interesting one because there are situations where and this is where the coach and the general manager uh, need to be in concert when there is a player that the team wants to shine up for a trade, mm -hmm. you know, the conversation generally goes, you know, we're really close here with a couple of teams on player X. Let's make sure he's playing 18 mm -hmm. to 20 minutes. Let's yeah, make sure showcase. he's on the power play. Like that, yeah. that's all like that's, that's, that, that's a showcase. So, but I, I don't know whether I'm, prepared to make the leap of okay we're gonna throw this thing in the ditch so we have the best better uh, we, we have, so we have the best lottery luck here or the best lottery chance to get someone like Connor Bedard like I think there are situations where coaches do things not just to win but do things for the better of the franchise I just don't know that I'm ready to ready to make that leap that well, yeah you know what they're gonna take this one off the road so they get the best pick I think I think two things can can be true I think that you can get a look at your younger players, see what you have there, understand better what's coming up next season. You're on a t you're coaching a team where there's a number of guys that you know are unrestricted free agents, or in some cases maybe it's before the trade deadline and, and they're going to be gone. And you're playing the younger players to see what the future looks like. But that being said, you know one of the ancillary benefits of doing that is that you might not win a lot of games, and next season you might be coaching Connor Bedard. I think those two things can be true. It's not as it's not as 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 emphatic and intentional as uh, we're going to sign two goalies that are you know twenty thousand leagues below replacement. <laughs> like it's not as as bad as that, <laughs> but but it is sort of the thing that you see some teams do when it gets late in the season. And and again, like they're not dumb. They know that if they play a bunch of guys who aren't NHL ready. Uh, that the chances of, mm. of success drop in playing a bunch of veterans. I mean, that's only natural. And so you get a look at the kids, probably don't win as many games as you might otherwise. And those two things are ultimately beneficial for the team. But, you know but what was wonderful thinking, yesterday? I'm tank. They're not thinking I'm going to tank. Like, Batman's right on that. Like, coaches, coaches that that's not their modus operandi. It, it may be a side benefit to what they're doing, but it's not it's not their main intention. Right. Now, you know what was, I don't think this was done intentionally to undercut Gary Bettman. I just think that it's something funny that Tamo Solani thought he should do in the Anaheim Ducks room. 
as Gary Bettman is talking about how there's no tanking, Tamo Solani with his phone is walking through <laughs> the Anaheim Ducks room and pointing out Mason McTavish and Trevor Zegras and Troy Terry. And then it scratches the name in a sh- with a Sharpie of Connor Bedard and puts it in an empty stall. Wink, wink. This is the big prize for the Anaheim Ducks this year. Right. Yeah. It's Timing beautiful. is everything. It was perfect. On the heels of, of Bettman's comments about nobody tanks, here's one of the, the best players of the last generation coming out saying, oh, yeah, you know what? Just, just throw this. Throw in the towel. Let's get Connor Bedard here. See, Anaheim's a different animal. Like, Anaheim is just, like, a young in many places, not very good defensive team. And, and you know, I, I think there was always the chance that things clicked differently and certain players were healthier, that th- their place in, in the in the pecking order could be much different this year than it is. Um, that being said, I mean, Pat Verbeek did also assemble a blue line with five puck-moving defensemen and one stay-at-home guy. <laughs> so, like, there was yeah. also a bit of a bit of that as well. But... I, I, again, that's why the trade deadline is so funny to me because you do have these teams that are like, should we, should we do what we can to increase our our chances to get Connor Bedard? And I'm like, have you seen the meticulous construction of these bad teams by teams like Chicago and Columbus and Arizona? Like, mm. you've got a year and a half of catching up to do to try to catch these teams that have been preparing for this moment. Um, so good luck to you, like Philly. In trying to create a, a, a team that's going to be, <laughs> you know, a three thirty points percentage team like the Blue Jackets are but right now. The the thing is, I don't think the Blue Jackets went into the season thinking that we're going to be awful. I do. I think, uh, honest, you you think that they after after spending gobs of money on players like Johnny Gaudreau, they thought, yeah, you know what, we're we're going to be awful. We're going to end up with Connor Bedard here. Because they're still waiting for their Kent Johnsons and their other and some other young players to to mature like the the new thing in the nhl that's happened in the last several years is is teams making big splashes in free agency but not necessarily for that next season it may have started with panarin Mm -hmm. and the rangers right but it's become a thing where if you have a chance to get your guy go get your guy we started off this segment talking about dougie hamilton that's exactly what the devils did the devils didn't sign dougie hamilton all of a sudden thinking oh next year we're going to be a cup contender they signed dougie hamilton knowing that when jack hughes is older and Jesper Bratt was older, and Nico Heischer was older, and that team was ready to contend, there was a very good chance a Dougie Hamilton would not be available. So, you know, you strike when the iron is hot. Johnny Goudreau's available. Johnny Goudreau, through happenstance because of his, you know, what his wife wants to do with her career, um, wants to be in Columbus. Well, fantastic. We have the money to give you, Johnny Goudreau. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be very good, but you're going to be here when we are. And and that's why they they do that. So, no, I don't, I don't, I think they knew they'd probably be in this position. And honestly, again, it's calculated. Like, like Yarmo Kekalainen has been looking for a Bedard or a Fantilli for the entirety of his general managership. Like, he had one, it seemed like, with Dubois, but that went sideways. But it's always been about, mm. let's find the guy in the middle and then kind of figure out the rest. And that's about how Yarmo's approached it. And I think he knows this draft above all, many others, not all others, but many others, has two guys that can be that guy for him. That's always been the story of Columbus, though. They can't like it's 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 a donut team, no center. Like that's that's just been the story going back to the uh, that like that's the origin story of the Columbus Blue Jackets. They've never been able to find centers. Okay, a couple of things I want to get into here with you. Um, around this time of season, we look at teams that are 
going to make a big playoff push, going to make a big playoff splash, or going to make a big uh, trade deadline splash. And we say to ourselves, all right, which are the teams here that are poised to play kingmaker? Which are the teams (laughs) that can tip the scales for some squads? And I think we look at the San Jose Sharks and what they have available. I think Mm -hmm. we look at the Vancouver Canucks and what they have available. I think we look at the St. Louis Blues and what they have available. And and here's the big one. Should we put the New York Islanders in that mix? And by the way, the Islanders play the Ottawa Senators tonight. I can't believe that here we are on Wednesday, January 25th, saying this is must-win for the Islanders against the Ottawa Senators tonight. But here we are. Do we put the Islanders in that mix yet that they could play kingmaker here as the season fritters away? So here's my question about that. In many cases, the teams that we're talking about have players that are on expiring contracts. And those are the players that become very valuable to trade deadline because they can help you in the short term, yep. but you don't have any long-term commitment to them. The New York Islanders is currently constructed have exactly three players who are unrestricted free agents next year. Zach Parise, who you could get for like a fourth mm-hmm. rounder. Um, Scott mm-hmm. Mayfield, who by all accounts is probably yep. what, like to keep. Yeah. And, and, and Semyon Varlamov, who, who knows? I mean, like I've heard that they do like to keep him around too because of his relationship with Sorokin and all that. So every single yeah. other player on the roster that you might want to uh, put on the trade block it's on a multi-year contract. And now some of them are on a very affordable multi-year contracts, like your, your you know, Casey Sizikas's and your Matt Martins. And then some of them aren't, um, you know, like Pajot signed for 5 million per through 2026 and he's 30 now. So like my question to you is, do they have players that are going to be available if they're not a playoff team? Of course. I think it would probably be time for Lou Lamarillo to admit that, uh, last season wasn't the anomaly. It was the two pandemic seasons that were the anomaly for the Islanders. But the question is, is how many teams are going to dabble at the trade deadline and acquiring players with this kind of term? Mm-hmm. That's where I wonder about, like there's one player that I really wonder about specifically, and that's Anthony Bavillier. Of course. 4.15 the one guy that I keep coming seasons, back. 25 years old. Yeah. Very desirable asset to be to be clear. Yeah, highly skilled player. And the other thing that I wonder about with this team, considering how this team has has been obliged to play under mm-hmm. specifically Barry Trotz, and now to a lesser extent, because I think Lane Lambert is trying to change things at least ever so slightly. Do we really know how good Matthew Barzell could do offensively on a? more high-flying team? No, we don't know. And I would ask the same... I don't think Barzell's going anywhere. Um, and I wonder the same thing about Anthony Bavillier. Yeah, that's I really, issue, really right? do. Like if, 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 like, if, if, if they're going to... If, if, if it's going to be the Islanders, it's got to take someone who really, really knows the potential for these players. Because who knows how good offensively Anthony Bavillier could be. Right, and then him. you run into the problem of, like, does it really in the long-term benefit your team if you're trading someone who's the same age as Barzell, right? Like, like, you got like seven guys that are north of 30, and then the guy that you might trade is 25. 
And granted, he's only two years away from UFA. Who knows after that? But I mean, again, like the problem right now for this team is that you've got guys locked in through 2025, and a lot of them are north of 30. And you you built this team for a short term run at the cup that never materialized, or or it came close to materializing, were it not for you know the campaign light. Yeah. It, it, it's almost as if they're becoming San Jose East, that there's no playoff success. <laughs> they're getting worse. They're getting older. And these these guys are locked into large term. And here's Matthew Barzell saying, I should be a superstar here in the NHL, <laughs> both on yeah. the ice and off the ice. I should be a total dynamic superstar in the NHL. But here I am. I'll go are they becoming further. San Jose East? Yeah, I'll go one further for you, which is that they've also handed out some trade protection. Like, there's, is there any reason why Kyle Palmieri should have a no trade clause? Like any, like any? Well, listen. Yeah, he has. The 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 the, the cynical the cynical person would say the contract is trade protection. Right, but but he actually has trade protection too. So if you're looking to move, no, I know. You find someone to take fifteen million dollars of Kyle Palmieri over the next three seasons, you know, until two thousand twenty-five. And, and 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 that's great. Like congratulations, he could just say no. So, again, like that's it's the kind of nonsensical <laughs> little things that happen when, and all of a sudden, much like San Jose found them yeah. has found themselves in that pickle. They're in this pickle. Except the problem is, is that they don't have, okay. you know, a Tomas Hurdle and a and a, and a Timo Meyer and, and a revitalized Eric Carlson. They're a team of Mark Edward Blastics. That's the problem. Okay, so let's get to that team of Mark Edward Vlasics, the San Jose Sharks. Uh, we all know about Ryan Merkley and the trade request. We know that Claude Lemieux, agent for Timo Meyer, is being you know allowed to to bring offers to the San Jose Sharks. Um, Eric Carlson, every time someone sticks a microphone in his face, he says he wants to win, and that's fueling him right now. Well, nudge, nudge, Mike Greer, uh, please get me out of here so I can maybe you know win a Stanley Cup before my career is done. How deep do you think it goes in San Jose? And do you think we see it this year? Because there's, in a lot of ways, not exactly a rush to trade someone like Eric Carlson. Still have him under term here for a few more seasons. We get to the Carlson thing in a second. Like Meyer, Meyer is obviously the real interesting one because he's young and he. It's complicated with the with the RFA award uh, salary situation. Like, is that going to legitimately be the jumping off point for a new contract? If so, I mean, what does that market look like? Um, you know, it's undeniable that there there's a certain connection between him and the Devils with regard to how many Swiss players they have on the roster already, right? And so, and and I think it's undeniable too that and the need. Hang on, pa- yeah, pa- pause, on pause on that for a second. Hang on, pause on that for a second. Like, wing would be like great. you. Yeah. We, wait, well, listen, we we just talked about Jack Hughes, and you mentioned uh, Nico Heischer. Like, it's not as if it's the land of the giants up front. Like all their sizes on that fourth line. Like if right. I'm the New Jersey devils, uh, am I not looking at my team and saying, this is really highly skilled team. We need to get a little bit bigger and stronger here for the playoffs. We know what happens when the postseason puck drops and we need some bigger guys. No doubt we have skilled guys that's covered off. Got a Selkie trophy candidate in Nico Heischer and a kid that's going to flirt with a hundred points this year in, in Jack Hughes. But do we not need some more size up front? Like to me, like all roads point to Timo Meyer here for the New Jersey Devils. And is it the Swiss thing with Heischer and Siegenthaler? Yeah, there is part of that. But I just look at it and say they need to get bigger up front. And this guy's bigger up front, and he can score thirty-five goals. And 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 and, it seems yeah, plus, like plus, hand to glove here for the Devils. 
And don't forget about this, too. And, and again, this might get into like the internal politics of some teams. And I don't know if this is the case with the Devils at all, but Devils have Jesper Bratt as their best winger. He plays with Nico Heischer. The Devils signed Andre Palat last summer, uh, a great veteran winger. Yeah. He plays with Nico Heischer. Yep. You know, where, where's Jack Suffer, right? Like, like, like at some point, you got to give Jack his guy, and, and Timo Meyer could easily be that guy. The Eric Carlson thing is weird to me because, like, I've talked to some people that know him tangentially. I think he'd go back to Ottawa in a millisecond. I don't think that's going to happen. I think he'd go no. play for a Florida team in a millisecond. I mean, that's always, there's always the possibility of that happening. Otherwise, there's the San Jose of it all that I think people have to remember, which is that there is a reason why your Marlowe's and your Thorntons and, and others stayed there as long as they have, and Vlasic too. I've lived in the Bay Area, Merrick. It's great. Mm. <laughs> it is awesome to live <laughs> in the Bay Area. And if you have, if you are making yeah. the money Eric Carlson is making, You've settled there with your family and you get to live in the Bay Area and you get to go to the beach and you get to golf, all the things that come with living in that area. It's beautiful. It's and he's probably got a great house. I've seen the houses of people like Eric Carlson have. Um, mm-hmm. It's I mean, like, yeah, you'd probably want to chase a cup. But at what cost? <laughs> at the cost of, of living in a place where you don't want to live, because right now you've got it pretty nice. And I think there's. Uh, we always joke about like, oh, his stuff is there. Well, not only is his stuff there, but the stuff that God has created to give man the sense that that uh, that, that Babylon <laughs> can exist on Earth. That's also there too in, in the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, okay, let, let let me ask you about the headline story coming out of uh, out of the weekend. Really, this has been the headline story all season long. We we don't have enough time to go minuscule on it. But what were your main takeaways from what we just saw? In the Bruce Boudreaux Vancouver Canucks saga, uh, where do you lay blame? And then I want to get the Boudreaux here in a couple of seconds. Do you lay it at the feet of Jim Rutherford, or you, do you go higher and say to yourself, Francesco Aquilini could have stopped this at any time, and he didn't? Well, from what I've heard, I blame Elliot. Um, from what I've been able to gather, it's, it's his fault that this all happened. Really there funny. are uh, there are plenty that believe that. Trust me, there yeah, are plenty really that funny. believe that. Um, no, I, I blame I blame management for this. Like clearly, um, some, something went awry as far as control of information, and and it goes. I can't blame Accolini for the months that led up to the coaching change, where. Boudreaux's systems are criticized and the training camp was criticized and it was made clear by Jim Rutherford that the only reason Bruce Boudreaux was still the coach of the Vancouver Canucks was out of contractual obligation. Now you could say the root of that is Accolini hiring a coach before he hires his management team, which is an idiotic mistake. But the stuff leading up to Tockett being hired is directly on Jim Rutherford for being you know, a loose lips, shink, sips, shink, uh, sink ships kind of guy and talking as much as he did to the media. Now, one thing I want to say about Tockett hiring, because I think that the entire thing has been so maligned by a lot of Vancouver fans. To go back to what I just said, Boudreaux wasn't, wasn't Alvin's coach, he wasn't Rutherford's coach. And there's something to be said yep. for the building of a culture and the building of relationships and trying to get the organization focused and pointed towards a brighter future 
by having everybody on the same page. And, and, and that page, by the way, is a page out of the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, <laughs> mid-decade yearbook when they won consecutive cups. Yeah, that's yeah. the page they're reading from right now. That's what they're trying to build in Vancouver. And there's something to be said for having all three guys having been a part of the same Mike Sullivan culture and now trying to bring that onto the team. And, and I, I think that's, for me, the biggest positive out of this whole mess is that you are, you're no longer going to have the snippiness, the undercutting, the subtweeting, and all of the stuff that was happening when, an, when a manager or a team president doesn't get to hire their guy. Now everybody's on the same page and we can start trying to push this franchise forward instead of you know treading water. Again, I always come back to the idea that it all depends on who those people are. Like we've seen, you know, general managers take over and wondered about the coach because, oh, the manager has the right to bring in their own coach and damn it, blah, 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 blah. But even if we just use the Vancouver example, I mean, Vigneault was there when Gillis took over. I remember there were those awkward moments. I think there were all those meetings in Vegas and Vigneault wasn't invited. And we're like, oh, okay, writing on the wall. And Gillis said, no, I'm going to give him a chance. And next thing you know, the team was in the Stanley Cup final uh, against the Boston Bruins. I, I, I guess, I guess, like all that I'm trying to say is, I just think it depends on the people, the people involved, and the the key, the central figure in all of this was Bruce Boudreau, and I can't help but thinking that throughout this entire ordeal, you know, Jim Rutherford had his reputation sullied. Same as Patrick Alvine, same as Francesco Aquilini. But the one person who comes out of it better than when he went into it was the coach that was behind the bench for a losing team this year. And that's Bruce Boudreaux. Like, I've been making this point recently. I don't know what's next for Bruce Boudreaux. I don't know if he'll ever coach again in the NHL. But what I do know is if I was a team out there and we talk so much about culture and relating to younger players and making it fun to go to the rink, certainly in the dog days. If you look at what Boudreaux just went through and put up with in Vancouver and never fired back, never turned around right. and blasted Rutherford, him and rather him and Rutherford, you know, like uh, Gabby's from, from Simcoe and Rutherford's from Beaton, Ontario. They both were, uh, you know, camp counselors at the Walton Sports Camp in the early 70s. They both played in the NHL at the same time. Like, uh, their careers have been essentially on the same timeline. Jim a little bit older, but they overlapped in a lot of places here. The fact that Brujo never fired back on any of it, always took the high road. I mean, you remember those press conferences. Tension. Right? Those sure. were stress filled. And Boudreaux, with one quip, with one laugh, with one small joke, cut all of it. Like, Greg, that's a skill. That's a skill that not a lot of people have. And Boudreaux just has it. If I'm another team out there, I'm not saying you're going to hire him to be your coach, but don't you want that in some capacity in your organization? That ability to have those types of old school communication skills. I think he came out of this situation better than ever, Greg. Head held high, more respect, charming, funny. Like, I know it was tough for him. Man, no one likes to get publicly embarrassed and humiliated like he did, but he never fired back, and he always found a reason to laugh through all of it. Do you not want that in your organization? Like if I'm a team, I'm like, I want that guy. What's his job? I don't know. I just want that. Yeah. I want that guy yeah. around. You know what I mean? Right. 
but in theory, like he comes on board as an assistant coach, and then, then the next, you know, the next year is like when is he taking over? Like that's that's the issue of bringing him on your yeah. bench, right? Like I was thinking, there was always that talk about make like him going oh. to Toronto, right, and working with Sheldon, and then you're like, oh, okay, that's a great idea until the Leafs go on a, a, a six game losing streak, and all of a sudden there's you know higher Gabby, 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 yeah, Gabby, they're chanting Gabby, right? Exactly. So <laughs> the two things there I'll say real quickly is like one. Um, somebody said this the other day from Vancouver, and I completely agree, which is that uh, the you know the Canucks screwed this up because a coach of a losing team got that kind of love fest when in another situation, yeah. Canucks fans would be calling for his head. And the second thing is, I love Bruce. I've, I've, I've covered Bruce since he entered the league as a head coach. I was in Washington when he took over the Capitals. I still mm-hmm. remember the the Bruce effect, and, and, and he was as much a a part of those young guns years as, as you know, Mike green was like, he was, he was a sensation and he remained. So, yeah. Um, I'm going to whisper this cause he's a real popular guy. He hasn't won a playoff series since 2015. I know that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying Bruce Boudreaux comes in to coach. What I'm saying is I just want him in the organization to be around I don't know what the job is. I guess I'm saying, oh, I don't even I know, know the if there's a coaching is. position for him out there, right? What is it? It's, you, got, you know what it is? I'll, I'll, it's your job I'll, to be Bruce Boudreaux on our team. No, the, you're completely forgetting that the Dallas Stars created this position for other teams. Just no one's adopted it. Ambassador of fun. Just like Brett Hull was for the, uh, for the Dallas Stars. <laughs> <laughs> he said he was the ambassador of fun. So make Bruce Boudreaux the ambassador of fun uh... for your team. If you're a what do we start? What do we start by talking about tanking here today? If you're a team with that negative cloud over, it's going to be a challenging season. You need someone around to make it fun at the rink and get out yeah. in front of the cameras. Boudreaux is your guy, man. I he he in a losing season, he came out of it with more respect, and everyone went, "Man, that guy is charming. That guy yeah. was great." I don't know. I, I think I, I just think that that was a command performance, like. You just want a guy like that around your organization. How do you not? Yes. Yeah. No, How do you gra- not? Like, that's a great point. So, like, this, this, the San Jose Sharks are terrible. You know, Quinn doesn't want to talk to the media about the, after these games. He's embarrassed. Hire Bruce Boudreaux as your press secretary. Mm-hmm. Have him come in and, and address the media after losses and crack jokes and, and tell stories. <laughs> and talk about how it's all going to get better for the Sharks. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then Quinn can talk after wins because he's proud of what happened look what i have created i have created victory and then have boudreaux be the guy who talks to media after losses and he's talking about when i was on the set of slap shot like it'd be fantastic for someone to hire him to be the pre- the press conference you know guy after losses i'm really stunned that you just created hockey's equivalent of the pro wrestling manager <laughs> I love that you just sort of weasel, weaseled in. Like he becomes like the Paul Heyman of the San Jose Sharks. And, and, All of a sudden, it couldn't it's, it's be Bruce a more Boudreaux. perfect guy than Bruce Boudreaux. He's a wrestling freak. No, I know. I know. I know. It would be ideal. The more that I think about this, like I'm really getting the juices flowing on it. I love it, Wish. <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately, we're out of time. I love it. Uh, okay, let's pick this one up next week. You be well. We'll talk to you in seven days, pal. Be good. Thanks, everybody. There he is, uh, the great Greg Wyshynski from ESPN, MVSW, every Wednesday here on the show. 